0: In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Toku, who talks to us about his journey from a touring rock band roadie to life in a monastery, and he dives into acceptance, connecting to our deeper selves, and using everyday activities as a container for our practice. Toku, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us.
3: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. I'm um, excited to talk to you today.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I came across you by way of our uh, mutual friend Meg Warden, and uh, given her tastes and uh, the kinds of things that she's brought to the show herself, I knew that I had to trust her judgment. So, uh, (laughs) tell us a a bit about yourself, your story, and sort of the journey before the journey that has led you to where you're at today.
3: Yeah, so um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, went to went to college and studied philosophy. And then when I got out of college, I um, worked in the music business for about seven to eight years. So I lived that. True rock and roll lifestyle. I was a roadie for a, um, a band, Gin uh, Blossom. Some people have probably heard of them, other people haven't. So um, I worked for them for a while and uh, ran a music venue and just lived that hardcore, pack a cigarette a day, quarter of pot a week kind of lifestyle. And um, I really enjoyed that when I was in my 20s, but found that I was just, every time I would get a new job or do something new, found that I was just continually unsatisfied with the results. You know, sort of achieving these external measures of success, but continually unsatisfied with, with what was going on in my life. Um, and then I had this sort of crisis happen where I caught my boss um, stealing from the bands by changing ticket count numbers. And uh, I confronted her and got fired and really just felt like, okay, this is it. I can't, can't keep working the music business anymore. This just isn't the right fit for me. And I was really at a loss um, and wasn't sure where to go next. I'd spent a little time in India and had some interest in spirituality, but nothing had really taken hold. And then I um, I went to a party, actually, about a week after I lost my job and met this guy named Lowell, who was 23. And from the from the second he walked in the room, I could just tell he had something figured out that I, I wanted to know. He was just calm and centered and very peaceful. And so I just started talking to him and asking him questions. And he had just moved out of this... Uh, this Zen monastery. And so I said, well, you don't know, have a job right now. I'll kind of, you know, he invited me to come try a meditation. I said, okay, I'll try meditation and instantly took to it. To me, it was like, um, gave me all the benefits that I got from smoking weed without having to smoke anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, started meditating I really took to it. And within three months, I moved into this, this monastery. And, you know, pretty much everything that happens after that is just where my life completely changed. I really learned a lot about, the fact that everything I'd really been looking for, I already had, but it took me going to a monastery to realize it. So that's kind of what brought me into doing what I do now, which is helping other people um, be mindful, help other people find that space they need to be aware and, and find what's deeply satisfying in their lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's do this. I, I want to go back to the very beginning of this, and I do know sure. who the gin blossoms are because I graduated <laughs> from high school in 1996, and I thought, hey, jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so really, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you two questions. Sure. One is a sort of how the background in philosophy and studying philosophy sort of has influenced and shaped uh, your view of the world and, and the work that you do today, and also uh, about sort of the evolution of, of music and art Uh, from those times to the way it is today and and kind of your experiences with that and what you have brought forward uh, from all of that into your own creative endeavors, into your own creative efforts from watching, uh, you know, somebody who's clearly a very successful professional musician group.
3: Yeah. So um, I guess I'll kind of take the first part of that. And and, uh, so um, personally, one of my experiences and and what I learned a lot from philosophy is I always cared a lot about meaning, what the the meaning is behind life, so what the big questions are. And I I was very clear for myself when I went to college. I didn't want my education to be a springboard to a job. I really wanted to learn for the sake of learning, have that be a very pure process. And so philosophy taught me a lot about how to think very critically and ask really difficult questions about the world. I'd always been a very curious person. I got kicked out a lot of classes in high school because I'd always challenged the teacher. And so philosophy gave me sort of a space to do that. But the problem with... My philosophy program, and I would say maybe the whole of Western philosophy, is it's very good at deconstructing, so taking complex ideas and breaking them down and challenging things, but it doesn't really put anything in their place, so what I learned by studying philosophy is that you could spend your entire life building up this brilliant theory of the world that just takes care of everything, and then 10 years after you die, some young upstart philosopher will come along and deconstruct the whole thing and tell you why you're completely wrong, and so it wasn't... Deeply satisfying in the way that I I had hoped it. I had hoped it to be satisfying. And so I kind of went to music as a as a reaction to that, because I said, you know, this sort of rational way of thinking this rational way of approaching the world doesn't work. So I wanted something that was more intuitive and emotional and more felt. And music is sort of the center of that for a lot of people. Um, and so working with the Jin Blossoms and, and with a lot of other bands, you know, I was right when I first started working in the music business, I was the person who was in charge of digital downloads, which people were like, not sure if that was going to catch on. And so I was in charge of that cause I knew like what, you know, what digital downloads were and I was helping people sort of set that stuff up. Um, and through the years that I worked in the music business just completely changed from this place of being really centralized, very controlled by a few very powerful people, um, to being very decentralized and very, very broken apart, where artists started to have a lot more control. And I saw in the music business a real resistance to that change, even though it was pretty clear was going to happen. There was a lot of resistance to that change. And I saw that mirrored in my own life, and my own resistance to to certain things changing, and my own unwillingness to accept certain, certain realities that I kept coming up again and again, which is that there's sort of these external things I was trying to make happen in my life um, were actually deeply satisfying. Um, So I hope that kind of talks about it a little bit. I mean, the only other thing I'd say about what I've learned about art and culture is watching the way it was then and the way it is now is that it used to be that the sort of power brokers decided what was popular, and now, artists and content creators really can go directly to the people who are listening and really hear from them, what do you like, what do you want, and give them more of that. So there's not that sort of filter, that separation. And I think that that's awesome and gives people amazing freedom, but it's also really scary because one of the things that record labels and content um, uh, aggregators did in the past is they kind of protected the artists and protected people. And so it's really scary to put yourself out there and be really vulnerable as a musician, as a blogger, as an entrepreneur, and know that the feedback you're getting is directly from the people, right? You you don't have anyone to validate you but your users, and that can be really scary for people as well.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I want to go back to something that you said about philosophy and and this idea of learning for the sake of learning and something that made you really curious. And, you know, I've asked variations of this question. I think that that's sort of a a fundamental sort of core thing that leads people to the work that they're meant to be or the lives that they're destined to lead. Uh, And I'm really curious... You know, if we didn't find it at such an early age, how we get back to it or or how we find that thing that we do where we learn for the sake of learning?
3: That's a great question. Um, I think that the biggest thing that draws people off of that path is this idea that they have to check some sort of box, they have to fulfill some sort of obligation for someone else in life. And that's what sort of takes people away from that that part of themselves. So it's interesting when I work with people um, doing the kind of coaching I do and also when I meet people on my blog, I find that it, if you just start asking the sort of interesting questions, asking these big questions, people are able to get down to that, you know, what they really care about really quickly. But the problem is they don't kind of pause and create the space they need in their lives to kind of get down to that to that level. They're always filling up their day with something. So it's, filling up their day with work and then filling up their day with TV, maybe filling up their day with, you know, social time or something else. They're not taking any space to really pause and ask those big questions. And what I've discovered again and again, and this is true of myself, is that when I actually slow down and pause, the things that are most important to me just naturally rise to the surface. So um, our hearts, our intuition, our inner wisdom is sort of always calling to us. Um, And our only job or the only thing we really need to do to get down to that place is just to create some awareness, create some space in our day for that thing to come up. Um, The problem is, one, is that we don't create space. And the other is that people are a little afraid to hear that voice because that voice demands you to be something greater than you think that you're capable of. So it demands for you to be something much bigger than a middle manager or um, you know, demands for you to be something much bigger than this sort of person that kind of phones it in. It demands you to show up in this way where you have to be wise and compassionate and caring and be of great service to other people. And that that reality that you have to change your life because that's what your heart's calling you to do is really scary to a lot of people. So um, I think that if you find your safe, a lot of people find that in middle life or maybe their quarter life, they kind of realize that life time is passing and that they need to reconnect with that. That the biggest thing they can do is just to be willing to pause and listen to what those voices are that arise in themselves. Listen to that wisdom. Listen to the parts of themselves that are asking them to be great and amazing people. Um, so, anytime they can create space to do that, that's really that's really the key.
2: Mm-hmm
0: yeah i mean I, I would completely agree you know it's funny we we really don't take much time to create space in the world we live in today because we're so sort of hyper connected and moving a hundred miles an hour um, and it really I mean I think that in that space is often where some of our greatest work is revealed uh, but i you know I've sort of a follow up question to that you mentioned you know one of the things that really stops people is they they run into fear uh, of of what they hear because they're called to do something much greater than what they're doing right now and so I'm wondering in your experience, how uh, one, you know, you can cultivate practices to create that space. And I know that we'll we'll probably spend quite a bit of time talking about that as we get deeper into this conversation and also overcoming the fear and navigating the uncertainty of this kind of a path, uh, you know, which Meg kind of referred to uh, as the path of the seeker in the conversation I had with her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is to just learn to be okay with being afraid. I think that we have this assumption that we should never be uncomfortable. And I think that our, especially in the Western world, I think we've gotten, you know, we live very comfortable lifestyles. You know, we're never really in danger of going hungry. We're never really in danger of of not having shelter. I mean, there are certainly people who are in those situations, but for the most part, most of us have our food and our shelter provided for. And even if our businesses failed and we lost our jobs, we have friends and family who would help us. So the The real sort of life-threatening dangers aren't really there. Um, But because of that, we've gotten uncomfortable with fear and doing things that make us afraid. And so I think the first thing is just accepting that fear is a very natural, normal part of life and that if it occurs in a way that's um, constructive and helpful, then it's all right. So the first step is just accepting fear, like just noticing I'm afraid right now. And um, for me, that's been one of the biggest transformative things with my business um, and, and and when I left sort of the regular world, left the music business, and kind of went out on my own, is noticing that fear and just saying, hey, that fear is there, and I'm okay with with that fear being there. It doesn't have to control what I'm doing. Um, And the difficult thing for me has been is when I don't notice that fear, it kind of subtly starts to control my life. I start making decisions based upon trying to avoid the fear. I try to avoid dealing with the things that are really important because I'm caught in this sort of fear mindset. And so whenever I notice that happening... What I do is I pause, take a deep breath, and just acknowledge, like, hey, you know, what I'm doing right now, working with a client, starting my business, you know, even posting a blog post, that's really scary because I want people to like it. I want to help people. I want people's lives to be changed. It is scary, and it's okay to be a little afraid. And when I do that, I find the fear actually dissipates. It's one of the fundamental ideas they talk about a lot in Buddhism is that, Everything is impermanent, including our fear, including our anger, including all of our desires. You know, they arise, they exist for a period of time, and they disappear. So it's not that we have to get rid of them. All we have to do is create a space for them to exist. They exist for a little while, and then they go away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you say that. You know, I, I was recently speaking with a friend who I, I jokingly always say he'll either be the next Steve Jobs or start a cult, probably both. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, we were talking about pain and he said, you know, one of the things with any sort of pain is just to sit with it and, and you know, be with it. And it, it's really fascinating how when you stop fighting something, it starts to dissipate really fast.
3: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, I mean, for me, my biggest emotional challenge in life has really been has really been anger. I, I grew up. Um, I grew up and just developed a sort of uh, irritable or kind of negative feeling towards the world. And a lot of problems I had um, were caused by anger. I've lost jobs because of anger. I've definitely ruined relationships. And I was never violent, but there was definitely verbal, sort of verbal aggressiveness. And I grew up, you know, grew up in the South, but I went to school college on the East Coast. And so I developed that sort of acerbic wit that people get um, from the East Coast and was very, could be very sharp with people and cut people down. Mm -hmm. And for me, the first step of overcoming my challenges with anger was just every time I was angry, just to acknowledge that I was angry and just be with that anger and then let it disappear. As long as I didn't take action and sort of cause it to perseverate, didn't resist it, that it was able to go in its own. I realized that part of my struggle with anger was that I would get angry, but then I didn't want to be angry. I felt like if I'm angry, I'm going to do all these bad things. I'm going to yell at people. And because I resisted the anger, it stayed around. But as soon as I was able to say to myself, okay, right now I'm angry, that's what's going on, the anger would start to loosen loosen and loosen. But the, I think it's important for people to remember when they do practices like that, like sitting with pain, sitting with fear. At first, um, noticing what's going on there is trying to like uh, count the branches of a tree that you're falling out of. So first, it's just like, you know, action, fear, action, anger, action, you know, pain. Um, but as you can, as you take time to slow it down, you can start to see what else is going on there, why you're getting angry, why you're afraid, why you're in pain, and create the space to let it go or to work with those parts of yourself that are, that are causing these difficult emotions to arise.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So- Let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit, and sure. um, you know, let's talk about this moment when you you walk into this party, and you know, one of the things you said is that you've got all this external validation, and yet you're still completely unfulfilled. And I think that's that's actually almost one of the other epidemics of our culture today uh, is that you know you can accomplish, 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 and it's kind of like why the hell are we not satisfied? Why do we not feel complete? Mm-hmm. Um, when we have all these amazing things happening in our lives. Uh, so I'm really curious, you know, one, for you personally, I mean, w- what is going on in a moment like that that really molds you into that? And then I want to start talking about, you know, how we overcome that and, and talk about your time in the monastery. Uh, because I think that, you know, that place of peace and, and the, you know, the guy you were talking about in the party, I think every one of us uh, <laughs> longs for that on some mm-hmm. level.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that. You know, that's the sort of um, that's the narration, or the narrative of, of sort of Western culture is that you go to college, you get a really good paying job, you make a lot of money, and you can buy all the things that you want and need. And if you have that freedom to buy whatever you want, then you'll be happy. And I think a lot of people are waking up and continue to wake up to. Um, to that idea, you know, I, um, I recently went to the world domination summit, which is filled with people who have woken up and I'm talking to people all the time. who are waking up to this idea that these sort of external things aren't really deeply satisfying. Um, you know, in one way we're creating these sort of very complicated nests for ourselves, nests of safety, right? Where it creates the illusion that our life is sort of predictable and that we're in control when reality, our life is largely unpredictable and out of control. Um, but it's very difficult to live in that space of realizing how out of, out, of control, out of control we are. And I think a lot of people wake up to that when they lose a job. They think, you know, hey, I put in this time with this company, and they love me, and all of a sudden they lose their job, and they realize how tentative things are and how quickly things can change. Um, so for me, the external things that I was seeking it's different than other people. So I think a lot of people were seek, are seeking money. They, they find the safety in that. For me, it was all about this sort of um, social gravitas or this – cool factor like I just wanted to have a really cool job that everyone you know would say like wow that's so amazing you're so lucky to do that and that's one of the reasons why I worked in the music business I met could meet famous people and I could go on tour and live this amazing lifestyle um, but the problem was is that that while, while it was powerful and meaningful in one sense and I sort of enjoyed the fruits of that of people admiring what I did It wasn't deeply satisfying because it wasn't coming from a place that um, my heart was calling me to go towards. It wasn't coming from this place of service and wanting to add value to the world. It was coming from this place of trying to fulfill my ego and make myself feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the danger of external validation is that if we base our happiness and peace on these sort of external factors, which are ultimately impermanent and uncontrollable – then we ourselves and our, our happiness is very based on this very shaky ground. And so my church in philosophy and then continuing to the monastery was very, about, very much about how do I find something that's truly reliable, that I can truly count on in any situation, whether it be, you know, wonderful success, yachts and mansions and everything else, or lying in a hospital bed, not being able to move anything below my neck right? Like what will work in all of those situations to make my life better and to help me be of service? And that's definitely what I found, what I found when I went to the monastery.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess the next question, uh, which is probably in everybody's mind is, you know, what is that? Uh, <laughs> and tell me about your time there. I mean, it, you know, obviously it didn't sound like you became a monk, uh, from, from everything you're telling me about. So, I mean, what is it like living in a monastery in the, in that kind of a situation? You know, what were the experiences that you had there? And of course, then, you know, what is this thing that, allows us to handle, you know, the extreme highs, the extreme lows, because one other thing I will say about this is that, yes, you know, we look at sort of that external validation, but in a lot of ways, uh, I've seen people who, myself included, carried the same sort of belief system of external validation from one path to this one. Uh, You know, it's just a a different version of the same hell.
3: Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, we call it spiritual greed or spiritual attainment greed, sort of this desire of like, trying to like have the most amazing spiritual experience you can share with others, which is a sort of uh what I what we call a close enemy. So it's not quite as bad as regular greed, but not as good as sort of pure desire for enlightenment or, or, or spiritual spiritual satisfaction. So just to answer the question first about the monastery, and this is one question I get a lot from people is what was that like? So our daily schedule was we woke up about 350 in the morning, about 420 we would sit meditation for two hours. That was broken into two 50-minute blocks with some walking meditation in between. Then we'd do a chanting service. We'd have a silent, uh, what's called an orioki breakfast, which is this uh, meditative style of eating that was developed in China and then taken to Japan. Um, Then we would have work practice, which could be anything from digging ditches to, I actually did the um, marketing communications. So I designed flyers and worked on social media because we were a retreat center. So we had to take care of all those real-world things. And then we'd have another chanting service, kind of a buffet lunch, a little bit of break after lunch, um, a, another work period in the afternoon. Then we'd have a dinner, which was at one point formal and one point casual, kind of varied depending on the time of year. And then another two hours of meditation in the evening, same format, a closing chant. And then mostly people went to bed. So um, we would get to bed around 10, maybe 11 o'clock, depending if you had stuff to do after, after meditation. And it was silent in the morning from... Um, it was silent from a, a night from the end of meditation to the beginning to the end of breakfast so all the whole nighttime was silent and then one week out of every three we'd have what's called a sesshin, which is a week-long meditation retreat that's uh, eight to twelve hours a day of meditation everything is done in silence no eye contact no physical contact and no talking except for notes maybe in the kitchen or on work assignments and then you'd have a, a daily interview with uh, one of the master, the zen masters there um, to talk about your practice typically so that's kind of what the schedule's like and the People are always like, "Is that enough sleep?" And that seems really rigorous. And the whole point of the monastery is it just creates this container of practice. And it, the difficulty of it, the lack of sleep, and the intense schedule, and the quiet. We talked about it. It, it speeds up your karma. So whatever patterns you have in your mind or in your life, the idea is to bring those things to the surface. Um, one way to look at it is anyone can be compassionate and wise on eight hours of sleep you know, in, in a comfortable hotel room. The question is, can you be compassionate and wise on four hours of sleep, you know, when your leg is in a great deal of pain? So that's the goal, right? Is to teach you how to be compassionate in the most difficult circumstances, to teach you to be wise in the most difficult circumstances. And the whole purpose of the monastery, the whole purpose of that community is to encourage you to pay attention to your own inner, inner wisdom, to pay attention to your thoughts and to let go of this idea that you are this very limited person, that you are, for me at the time, um, before I sort of became Gentoku, which is my Dharma name, um, and Toku short for that. I was Sam and sort of who Sam was and I was this music business guy and this is how tall I was and this is what the clothes I wear and this is what I think about the world. To realize that that is all very temporary and that there's this part of yourself that's deeper underneath all of that that's much bigger and contains... Not only that idea of who you are, but all these other ideas of who you could be, and all these other parts of yourself, all contained in that package. So that's what the monastery experience was was really about—to help you see that wholeness of that wholeness of your being. Um, and as for the question about what would what is this thing, right, that is satisfying in all walks of life? So on one hand, I can't I can't describe that, right? It's something deeper than um, deeper than words can possibly describe. So we, we used to say that. Um, it's, like, it's like a burning fire, right? You can't, if you can't touch it, you can't turn away from it. That it's, it's so big that it's hard to talk about. Um, but for myself, the simplest way I look at it is when I can be this whole being that I am, when I'm able to integrate all the parts of myself, both the good parts, or the, what tr- people traditionally call the good parts, so the compassionate part, the wise part, the part that's of service, as well as the parts, the shadow self that I'm not as proud of, so the greedy parts of me, the jealous parts, the parts to me that are sort of you know depraved or indifferent or angry, or all those parts of myself that I'm not as comfortable with, when I can make all of those things part of who I am and I can see myself, um, see this uh, being Gentoku as containing this magnitude of, of ways of living in the world, then light, life becomes very light and easy to deal with because... I just have to be present and trust that the part of myself that needs to step forward in any moment will step forward in that moment. So the part of myself that needs to step forward with success can step forward. The part of myself that needs to step forward in failure can step forward. And that my primary goal in life is to sort of get my ego and this little idea, what I call the little self, out of the way so that my big self can show up in every aspect of my life.
4: Selling a little or a lot?
0: I love it. So that, that prompts a lot more questions. Uh, a couple a couple of different things um, sure. that, that come from this. First is is this idea of creating a container uh, for the practice, which you were able to do in the monastery. So I'm wondering, you know, how do we create a container for our practice? How do we connect to that deeper part of ourselves and how do we get our big self to show up in our lives?
3: Sure. So a container practice can be anything, right? It, it can be any set of rules that you put on yourself and it, it can change. So the monastery is like the most sort of obvious sort of heavy handed way of doing that. You put yourself in a place with a certain group of people with a schedule that you have no control over. And so it sort of forces you to look at what you do have control over. Right. I mean, uh, if you ever read, uh, you know, um, uh, Victor Frankl's man's, you know, man's search for meaning, he talks about this difference between how people, even in concentration camps where they had no control, had a lot of control over their attitude and how they approached the world. So that's, You know, putting yourself in a monastery is like putting yourself into a prison or putting yourself into a really difficult environment, which forces you to find that thing which is untouchable. But, of course, most of us can't move into a monastery. That's just the reality. So there's ways to make little containers in your life. Um, One is to find other people who are interested in the same kind of path and create some accountability with those other people. Um, A lot of the things you can do to create that container is just to, to actually remove things from your life that prevent you from paying attention. So I do, um, I do uh, regularly, every other day I do what's called a no media day. So I do um, one day without, no television, no video games on my phone, no Hulu videos, and I actually do no radio. I allow myself to listen to music, but no radio. So I'm not listening to NPR, I'm not listening to what's going on in the world that sort of can cause a lot of distress. And I eliminate media for that one day. And what I find is that when I do that, that naturally creates this container of practice where I can deal with the thoughts that are coming up. the things that I might have missed because you know I was spending time checking my Facebook, you know, playing a video game on my phone. That that time that I filled up is now open for that thing to happen. Um, but a container could be as simple as just you know paying attention in the morning shower. I know a lot of writers and people talk about the power of the ideas you get in the shower. A shower is itself can be a container of practice. You're quiet. You're focused on your body. Um, and if you allow your thoughts to just naturally rise, that can be a container of practice. Exercise can be an amazing container of practice. Go for a run without your headphones in, um, workouts in a gym that's quiet. If you can find one that can be tricky, um, or do weightlifting in your house and when you're quiet, again, that getting into your body, finding a place where, um, your body's involved in something, but your mind is sort of free to kind of roam and wander, that can be a container of practice. So I'd say life outside the monastery is more about finding these little moments of silence throughout your day. So that moment in the shower, the moment when you go for a run, um, even just walking instead of driving somewhere. So I often walk to the grocery store and don't listen to anything. and, and just present. Um, and I find a lot of the stuff that I need to deal with in my life or ideas that I have come on those little short moments of walks, moments of, of silence during the day.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah I would uh, I would completely agree with that I mean obviously as, as an avid surfer that's a good I think surfing is actually the container for my practice
3: absolutely yeah surfing's great I mean it's uh, interesting we actually had a guy that came to the monastery a lot that talked about how he had not been meditating for a while and then he went surfing and this great white shark came up and literally took a bite out of his board right in front of him and he went back to the meditation center next week he was just like I realized that You know, life is short, and if I want to really see deeply into my own experience, there's no time like the present, right? We all think we've got 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of us. Um, But if we realize that, you know, we don't have a lot of time, we got to really work on this stuff now, that that can encourage us to really engage in those containers of practice. I think anything that's rhythmic like that, too, like surfing. Bike riding, things where you're kind of doing the same thing in a pattern. You have to wait and be aware. Those make great containers for practice.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's go back to that. The, the follow up uh, question to this as well is, is sure. connecting to this deeper part of who we are, um, and you know, allowing our big self to show up in the world. And then we'll we'll get into finally the core of what we we want to talk about, which is this whole idea of you know awareness as the path to change in our lives. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So how do you connect to that deeper self? I think that's a question that I. I struggle with regularly. Um, one way to look at it is that we we often get caught. Most of us have this idea or know this idea of the small self. We also often get caught in this uh, these small selves. So there's particular ways. So a great way to look at a small self is um, if you drive or commute at all, the way you function in traffic is this small self. So the traffic driving part of you, the part of you that's driving you, right has a certain idea of the way the world should work. People shouldn't cut you off. People should go quickly at stoplights. Pedestrians should pay attention when they're crossing the road. It's a sort of set of beliefs, right? And so we, we react to the world based upon this very limited set of beliefs, right? Um, in fact, that set of beliefs might include like anybody who cuts you off or breaks these rules is a jerk. They're always a jerk, right? We kind of tend to relate them to character flaws when people do those things. Which, ironically, when we do them, we're like, oh, we have a good reason. Like, I was late, didn't mean to cut that guy off. So we explain it for ourselves, but for other people, we kind of judge them. So if you take that little self, that traffic, that driving self, and those set of beliefs, that's one little small part of yourself. But then a lot of people who have had, like, maybe a good day or when they're driving have found that, some of those sets of beliefs are very loose. So if you're not in a hurry, maybe it doesn't bother you if somebody cuts you off. Maybe it doesn't bother you if people are walking across the street or drivers don't go as quickly. And so in, you know, outside of that small self, there's this bigger self that contains that little traffic self, the little driving self, as well as all other parts of parts of who you are. So the, part, the way you are in your office or the way you are in your relationships. And that big self is sort of why is this most compassionate person who you are so one way that i I help people kind of connect with that is whenever they notice a small self arising so if a person has a particular issue with getting irritated while driving i'll have them just visualize that small self as maybe a separate little part of themselves like a little person Um, you know i might say for me it's this it's a little driving toku and I see that little driving toku, and that he's very concerned and afraid, and he wants to be safe in his car, and he doesn't want other people to run into him, and he wants the world to be fair, and I'll just feel all of those feelings and beliefs that he has. And then from there, I'll see in my own mind, I'll visualize stepping back and imagining myself holding that little toku in, in presence and just looking at him and saying, you know, hey, I understand why you're afraid, I understand why you're scared, I understand why you want the world to be fair, but I'm I'm Big Toku. I'm the Big Toku that kind of is the wisest, most compassionate person I can be. And I'm here to let you know that it's okay. And I can take care of this situation and be present um, when when you're struggling. And just a little sort of visualization exercise like that can help people begin to step back into that space where it's okay to have that part of themselves that's afraid, but it doesn't have to control them, right? It's not about making this little traffic toku afraid or, or making it the bad person it's about okay how can i make that a part of myself and that's okay but contain it in this bigger space and bigger container but what a lot of people struggle with even with that exercise is they get into that big space but they can't stay there very long because they're caught in a lot of these reactive patterns and so i just encourage people to practice like okay you notice a little self feel what it's like to take a step back and the space that's around that little part of you and then it's okay if you collapse back into it. That's fine. Just always practicing, stepping back, feeling the space around these ideas that we have. And then if you collapse, that's okay. Hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it, it's interesting because it, it sounds to me sort of like separating yourself from the things that are happening to you in your external world and realizing that all the things that are happening to you are not who you are as a person.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not, not only the things that are happening to you are not who you are, But that, in fact, actually your thoughts are not who you are either. To not believe every thought you have, right? So maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic and you think, like, that was really dangerous. That person is a jerk. And if we believe that thought, then we get trapped in this idea that everyone who cuts everyone off is a jerk, right? And that's just not true. Like, people cut people off for all sorts of good reasons. And so if we can hold that idea lightly, Mm
0: -hmm. then
3: we become capable of being much more compassionate to other people.
0: So let's let's actually dig deeper into this idea of holding ideas lightly. I mean, holding uh, you know things lightly, and let's talk about this context of heavy things. I mean, you lost a job, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, looking back, you know, if you if you were to look back at your life at all the, the sort of challenging and traumatic experiences, I mean, how do we take an experience that causes a lot of pain and hold it lightly?
3: Yeah, um, it's tricky, right? It's not. I think it's dangerous to pretend that it's just super easy. I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of positivist people, optimistic people, you know, would say like, oh, you just, you know, manifest something better. You know, it's, it's painful. I think it's, the first step is to admit that that is very painful. That when you lose a job, lose someone you care about, lose a relationship, that that's a painful process and you, there, you just have to experience some of that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to realize the set of beliefs, and this is kind of where my philosophy background came in really handy when I was studying all this stuff was to look at the set of beliefs or assumptions that you have about the world that underlie that disappointment, right? And um, so for me, it was losing a job. You know, I had grown up with this idea that, especially if you watch television, like, good people went out and the world should be a fair and just place. And I confronted somebody who was inherently unjust, unethical, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I go as far as saying they were evil, but they were really doing everything wrong. And a part of me believed that in those situations, I should I should be able to win, right? I should be able to vanquish my foe and and take this woman down and get her you know get her removed from her job. But that's just not what happened. She had more power. She had more ability. Um, I was limited in what and what I what I could do, and so. What was very difficult for me in that situation, and I have worked on this for years trying to figure out how do I let go of that situation of feeling that resentment torture and feeling my anger at the the fact that the world is is an unfair place. Um, For me, it's been about realizing that the control that I do have in those situations, the place where I can find space to hold those things lightly has to do with how I allow those thoughts to continue controlling my life or how can I let those thoughts not control my life. So instead of every time I think of that woman and her face and the situation, do I allow those same thoughts of anger and, and frustration and replay those things over and over again, right? Because that's not a reality, right? She, she's not doing that to me now. I'm not confronting her now. Um, I'm not having those bad conversations now those are all memories they don't exist in reality anymore they only exist sort of in my mind do I allow myself to replay those things again and again and again or instead of doing that can I say okay those things happened I don't have control over the past what I do have control over is in this moment I can acknowledge the fact that that was painful I can accept that that person did what they did even if it was totally unfair and awful Um, and say, okay, this is, this is what happened, and I just accept it the way that it is. I just accept that it happened the way that it is, and now I can move forward in that space of acceptance. But the very difficult thing people is, is they think that like, it's like you accept it once and it's done, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the same thing is true about forgiveness. It's like, okay, I forgive this one one time, and that's it. I never have to forgive her again. The practice of acceptance and forgiveness is this ongoing active practice, so if you forgive someone, you really have to spend the whole rest of your life kind of forgiving them. Whenever that, whenever I think about her, even in this moment, I'm feeling a little like, I wish I could have defeated, you know, this evil woman. Um, I have to go, you know, I just accept that that's what happened and I forgive her. Um, and then also in one of ways, it was a blessing that she did what she did. If she hadn't done that, I maybe never would have found meditation. I would never would have found my calling. And so even these bad things, I can't help but be grateful for them because they've led me to where I am now in doing the work that I'm doing. So I think so those two pieces: of first looking at acceptance, and then two, looking at what what you can be grateful for as a result of those things happening in your life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you know it's interesting. You know, I was re-listening to to you know something Meg had said, and she said, you know, these things that are are painful, these things that are unfair, we're not getting out of them. They're just a part of life, but they also become our greatest teachers. And uh, I think that if we let them, and and you know, you you said, you know, something good will come from all of this, or something along those lines. And sometimes we can't see it in the present moment, but I think that if we really cultivate sort of the intention that you know something wonderful is going to happen. Uh, as a byproduct of this. I think it allows us to really sit with that acceptance a lot more easily.
3: Yeah, no, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, I guess the only thing I would tweak about that statement is that it's not that everything happened in our lives that are bad results in something good happening, right? It's not this sure. sort of quid pro quo, like yeah. we yeah. suffered this great tragedy and that, but that's, you know, but then we're going to save like a million puppies. And so that was okay. And um, uh, I think that it's... Um, Whenever you, my teacher used to say a lot, whenever you set forth an intention, in the moment you set forth that intention, all the obstacles to that arise. So when I decided, you know, over a year ago to run a marathon, before I had this idea of I'm going to run a marathon, I didn't have to deal with knee pain, finding time to train, how to do nutrition, getting a training program, you know, finding time in my day to stretch so I would stay healthy. None of those things were a problem. But as soon as I said, okay. I'm going to run this marathon, all of those obstacles arose in the same moment I set the intention. But those obstacles weren't standing in the way of what I was trying to achieve. Those obstacles were the method that helped me achieve that, right? Every mile I ran in training was what I needed to be able to run that marathon. So often the obstacles that we face in our lives, even if it doesn't have a direct sort of correlation to something good, our ability to overcome them is what is teaching us what we need to know to live the life that we were meant to live, right? Um, And even though it may... Looking back, I know I'm grateful for those things. They were also painful for me that um, I needed to experience that pain so that I could connect to people. And so now when I meet people who have lost jobs or dealt with situations that are unfair, I'm able to be present with them and say, hey, I know what that's like. I've been there. And in a way that I never would have been able to had I hadn't had those experiences. And so it's the... The obstacles themselves are what help us gain the strength to, to achieve that calling that the universe, our heart, our intuition is asking us to, to step forward and do.
0: Well, let's do this. Um, let's shift gears again, and and sure. let's start talking about this idea of of awareness as sort of the path to change. I mean, which is really the core of what your work is about, um, mm-hmm. and bringing that into our habits. I mean, let's expand on that in a way that it can actually be put to work uh, in our lives on a day to day basis. And talk to me about kind of how it's changed your life.
3: Yeah. So for me, I felt like in many ways my brain was my enemy until I was about 28. Like a big part of my life was figuring out how to subjugate my thoughts because they were sort of out of control. I would overthink everything, overanalyze everything. Um, and if you've ever overanalyzed anything, you can you know the sort of negative effects of that, right? Like the it's hard to be natural and authentic and real with people. It's hard to know exactly what kind of decisions to make because the brain can kind of analyze everything forever. Um, so for me, my process has really been to learn that My brain thinks that it's trying to help me, right? Our our brains kind of evolved in this state of, like, um, the world out there is scary. To keep myself safe, I need to predict all of the potential things that might happen in order to keep myself from getting eaten by a lion. So, like, okay, there's a cave over there. There might be a lion in there. I can imagine a lion coming out of there. I should avoid that cave. And that worked great when our lives were, like, you know— um, picking fruit from trees and hunting down mastodons and avoiding lions but as our lives have become more complex and we have all these different things coming up all the time it's really hard to know like what is a threat, what is not a threat where is the opportunity, what is not the opportunity and so our sort of pattern recognizing minds have gone into overdrive and have a really difficult time stepping up into that and so what I had to learn from my days when I studied philosophy when I was in the music business was that while my mind was helpful in certain circumstances, that if I was able to pause and trust that there was a part of myself that was wiser and more compassionate than my sort of little mind was, and if I was able to create the space for that person, that part of myself to step forward, that it would step forward in that moment. So I didn't have to overthink every situation because when something arose, I could just say, okay, I'm just going to be present and whatever I need to say, whatever I need to do in this situation, that's just going to come forward from me in a very authentic place. Um, and I think that, that that is the hardest thing for a lot of people who have lived their life the really rational focus, especially people who have been very successful. Now, they've you know figured out all this stuff in business and they've you know figured out the way to work these social situations to let go of the, this reliance on the rational sort of analytical mind and trust that in that space of awareness, wisdom and compassion will arise. That's really, really difficult for people to get their heads around until they experience it for themselves. So for me, all the first step of doing that, the first step is to create any little space of awareness in your day at all. So great ways to do that are to go to work without listening to the radio, to spend time in the shower without using your radio and your phone. I talk to so many people that listen to the radio or work, use their phone in the shower, which seems crazy to me. <laughs> um, it seems really dangerous, but you know, whatever. Um, you know, run without your headphones in. Anytime you can create space for there to be silence and there to be space for contemplation in your day, that's when you start to be able to hear all of that stuff that comes up. Um, the other tricky thing is people start doing that or they start meditating. Meditation is obviously the most classical way to do it they they like, oh, I feel like I started meditating or I started being in silence and my mind's going crazy. And what I always tell those people is like, in reality, that's what your mind was doing the whole time. You just didn't know that's what was going on. Mm -hmm. And that's why you weren't very effective. That's why you weren't able to um, connect with other people. That's why you couldn't get anything done is because your mind was sort of just
0: "Ah, ah, ah,"
3: all the time and you didn't notice it. so. If you do slow down and take that break of silence, know that it's totally normal for your mind to seem a little crazy. If you stick with it for a little bit longer, like a snowball, all of those thoughts will start to settle down and you, you will actually begin to find that, that place of peace and, and satisfaction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting um, that you bring up meditation because I think that our sort of obsessive idea, for those of us who are sort of unaware of it, is that you you don't think or that the thoughts just stop and you go into this place of of a blank mind which i've realized is so far from the truth that thoughts are just going to be there and everybody i've ever talked to about this says it's kind of like just watching cars you know go by or watching clouds go by in the sky uh and if you just watch apparently your mind starts to slow down but the idea that you're just going to stop thinking about anything is a little silly
3: yeah yeah it's it's um it's really funny when people think about the monastery. They think like, oh, I must, my mind must have been silent the entire time. <laughs> you know, people go to meditation retreats and they, and they see these pictures on the internet of someone sort of this beautiful, young, scantily clad woman sitting on a beach in Bali, you know, in this meditation posture and so peace. And it, it's much more like having a wrestling match with yourself for four hours a day. It's sort of like painful and difficult and challenging and... Um, I have been in you know, the most perfect environment you can imagine for meditation you know, this whole center was built for that purpose that I'll be on a retreat and spend eight days and I'll be thinking about a commercial I saw two weeks ago and how catchy the jingle was so there's no environment that's perfect for meditation you know? um, and I have, I've had tons of people say like oh I, when I meditate it doesn't work it's not working and the key is success in meditation is not a quiet mind Quiet mind is the result of a lot of meditation. If you have a quiet, you you know, if you meditate a lot and you're very serious about your practice, sometimes, if you're lucky, your mind will quiet down. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can definitely improve your chances by doing that more often. But in reality, success in meditation or success in mindfulness is noticing your thoughts arising, not reacting to those thoughts as much as you possibly can. So that means if you react, if, if normally you react to them 100%. If you react to them 90% this time, that's success. And then noticing those thoughts are going on, letting them go, and coming back to whatever your object of meditation is. So I tell people, if you meditate for 20 minutes a day and you are only present for two breaths of that entire meditation, that is a huge success. That is way better than most people will do You know, for years, is to be present for two breaths of their life. Most people are only aware maybe when... You know, they have huge events that happen, like the birth of a child, or they fall in love. Most people are just not present most of the time. So, if you can notice what your thoughts are, come back. You know, accept those thoughts. Come back to what's going on in your life, in your body, in this moment, even for just a couple seconds. That's a huge success. So um, that's that, and that's an idea that I'd love to propagate and share with more people: is that you cannot possibly be bad at meditation. Nobody's bad at it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes it's you have this idea, your mind has this idea, of meditation will look like this, and then meditation looks like something that does that's not as peaceful and calming as you thought, and that's and that conflict there is the definition of human suffering. That's everything in our lives. All of our suffering is caused by that conflict between the way we think things are going to be and the way they actually are. Right? We go on a date. We think it's going to be like this. You know, the guy or the girl is a jerk or rude or not as pretty as their you know profile picture on OkCupid suffering, right? And so the same thing is true of meditation. If you want to make yourself suffer, think that meditation is one way, and then your no doubt will be proven wrong.
0: Well, I love that because I think that can be applied, like you said, to so many aspects of our lives.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's why acceptance or creating the awareness in these spaces is so important is that, you know, it's, We realize that we're telling ourselves a little story in our head about the way the world should be, and then the world is just not like that. And so we have a choice. We can either hold tight to this idea, this little box of the way we think the world should be, or we can say, okay, this is the way the world really is. What can I do about it? What can I change with it? How can I be in it in a way that's a little more helpful than harmful? And that's the place where great service, great opportunity, amazing presence. That's, you know, it's Mother Teresa's great example. You know, she didn't go to the poorest part of India and said, "You know, poor people, it shouldn't be like this. People should have more money and sort of get upset and then go home." She said, "This is the reality. This is the poverty people are living in. What can I do to, to change that? What can I do right now with the current situations, my current abilities to make a difference?" And that's why people like her are claimed as these great people, not because they resisted poverty, but because they accepted where it was and acted in the, in the ways they knew how to in the moment.
0: Well, I think that that really makes a, a beautiful way to uh, sum up our conversation. So, I, I want to ask you my final question, sure. uh, which you know we close all our interviews here with. You know, we live in in such a, a noisy and, and loud time, and people are trying to create more art than ever before um, and really find this sort of deeper part of who they are. So, I guess for me, the, the question becomes: What is it in your mind that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that we all have access to this one bright mind this vast source of wisdom and compassion but what makes the world so beautiful what makes each person so beautiful and what makes each person's creativity so beautiful is that that one truth, that one wisdom that one compassion doesn't just get expressed in one form it gets, gets expressed in as many forms as possible so everything around us is a gate to that every person is a gate to that um, wisdom and that compassion and every act of creation is a gate to that um, gate to that um, wisdom and compassion and it's not just perfect expressions of that it's also the imperfect expressions of that and I would say for me what makes people uh, unmistakable is not their perfection, it's not the ways that makes them the ideal. In some ways I think people who are, live, who are ideal aren't as interesting as people who are imperfect um, and so for me what makes a person unmistakable is The ways that their expression of that one bright mind, of that one great compassion, comes forward in this imperfect way. And the way that they struggle or aspire to be something greater than they are, the way that they struggle to create peace and satisfaction and happiness and joy in their lives... That's what makes them unmistakable. It's that struggle, which is which is very unique. And I'm sure there's similarities, and sure there's resonance with other people. But that person's individual struggle is so special, and the way that they over overcome their obstacles is so unique and so interesting. That's what makes each person this really amazing expression of this one bright mind, of this one wisdom, of this one compassion, and so for me in the work that I do what I'm amazed with with every client that I work with or every reader I talk to or even every person I meet at a conference is the fact that we're all reaching to be something greater, more beautiful and more amazing than we already are and when we offer ourselves and other people the space to step forward into that just a little bit right not necessarily become this amazing person who, like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela that makes a huge change, but even that one small step into being a little more kind, to being a little more creative, to offering a little more of that authentic wisdom, that authentic self into the world, that that's, that's a sort of amazing opportunity we, we, we reach every day and every moment. And so I would just invite all, all of your listeners and, and everyone else to just If you can, create that space for yourself in your day. Create that space for other people, for people to step up and be something more than they already are, to be this whole complete amazing being that is speaking truth to power and is speaking wisdom. And When you do that, I think that you'll find that not only will you amaze yourself, but the people around you will amaze you as well.
0: Awesome. I'm not even going to touch it. Uh Well, Toku, thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, and and share some of your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, This has been a a really, really eye-opening and insightful chat. Great. Thank you so much for having me and um,
3: uh, love to talk to anyone about this anytime. So um, appreciate the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Our goal every week is to bring you insights and interesting conversations to help you advance your causes, conversations, and movements. If today's episode resonated with you in some way, help us on our mission to keep the movement going. There's power in numbers. The best way you can do that is to leave a review on iTunes. This helps more people to find us on iTunes and make sure the conversation keeps growing. By the way, if you're on your iPhone and you haven't subscribed, Click the plus button on the top right-hand part of your screen so you never miss an episode. We're really grateful for your support of the Unmistakable Crew.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.